we are starting a brand new series today. It's called Hot Mess Christmas. So some of you are like, man, I think the decor looks amazing. It looks like my house. Well, our goal was to make it a hot mess. So uh, I don't know if that's offensive or not, but my, my goal was it would be reflective of what happens a lot of Christmas seasons. They start out hopeful. We got high hopes that it's going to be the best year ever. Pajamas are picked out with beautiful little reindeer. Uh, we got the perfect Christmas movie and the perfect gifts selected for the right reactions. And then you end up with a family fight and arguing and wondering how long it's going to be before school starts again so that you can rid yourself of the plague that's in your house. Uh, that, that may not be everybody's experience, but it, I've, I've heard there may be some that have, gone, that have had a hot mess Christmas. Uh, the truth is, a lot of us, we have hot mess families. And Christmas doesn't fix what's broken in our lives. And so there's not a magic to a season that fixes things. Uh, there's not like in the spring, magically everything will get better, or at Christmas, everything will get fixed. In fact, holiday seasons tend to magnify what's wrong in the world, not minimize it. Uh, and if you're not careful, what can end up happening, especially in the world's versions of holidays, is you can begin to uh, find sorrow and grief and discontentment to be your constant companion instead of finding peace, because at the end of the day, what this entire season is about is a man named Jesus who came to live amongst us so that he could save us from ourselves. And so just be reminded that the whole point of what we're doing in this season is declaring and reminding ourselves that we need help. Now, the truth is, uh, I have a cousin who is uh, Greenville Police Department, and he invited me several years ago to go do a ride-along with him. He said, whenever I wanted to, I could call him up and I could ride along. I've known Jordan for a long time. He works with Greer. He doesn't invite me for ride-alongs. I hear it's, it's scary in the streets of Greer. Uh, so, <laughs> but in Greenville, he was gonna, my cousin wanted me to come do a ride-along. And I said, man, I'd love to do it over Christmas break after I preach the Christmas sermon. Uh, usually we have a week off. I'd love to come and, and ride along with you. And he said, man, that's the busiest time of the year. And I was like, why? He's like, well, families get together who don't normally get together. And everything's good for the turkey and the dressing or the ham or whatever's on the table. But then they begin to tell stories about things that haven't healed, about things that haven't been forgiven, about bitterness that has continued to just sit under the surface. And then what I end up driving up on is grandma crying on the porch and sons fighting in the yard. And for a lot of you, you can relate. Like, your family season is not a season of getting together that you look forward to. In fact, you kind of look at it as an obligation of something you have to do. And what I want to encourage you with is that the Bible is filled with hot mess families. Uh, you don't find a lot of families that have it together anywhere in the Bible. There's this whole mess of Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel and murder that goes on within the very first family that we're introduced to in the Bible. Then you got a guy named Abraham who marries a really beautiful woman named Sarah. He goes into the land of Egypt and convinces Pharaoh that it's not his wife because he's afraid of the consequences of having a hot woman on his arms. So he lets Pharaoh almost marry his wife. Have any of you have tried to give your wife away? To, don't, don't answer that. But my, my point is, it's messy. It's messy. And then, and then you got this whole thing with Rachel and Leah and Jacob, where Jacob takes Esau's blessing. And we're going to look at that in a few weeks. And his parents divide Jacob and Esau up into favorites and pit them against each other. And then Jacob runs away because he's going to get killed to his uncle Laban to marry his cousin. I mean, this is like a love story straight out of Moonville. And, and, I mean, like uh, Possum Kingdom. And, 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 and next thing you know, he goes to the wedding day. He's worked for this bride. And he uh, all of a sudden discovers the next day that it wasn't. The pretty daughter, which that's recorded in the scripture, it was the less pretty daughter. 
and now you got to work more for the pretty one, which that's going to go really well when you have two wives, which, I mean, how many of you have, don't raise your hand if you have two wives either, because, but my, my point is, <laughs> the thing I'm trying to get at is the, the Bible is filled with families that don't have a lot that's functioning well. And what we get in the Bible is a, sto- is a lot of stories of a God who does great work in dysfunctional families. And if you have a dysfunctional family, I want you to know God intends to do great work through you in that family. And you may not be the reason, and you're not the savior of it to make it work or become what it's not. But I want to encourage you with the fact that God has good plans for the family. And I believe that there is some encouragement we can find from some hot mess families this Christmas as we deal with our hot mess families in the week's to come. So I want to invite you to make it a priority over the next couple of weeks to come in with us and let's look at some of the hot messes that we see in the Old Testament as we look forward to the hope that we have in Jesus Christ together. So today I want to kick the series off by talking about boundaries. I've entitled the sermon, We Have a Boundary Problem. We have a boundary problem. And for some of you, uh, I'm just going to go ahead and lead off with uh, two warnings about this sermon. One, it's tough. Okay, this sermon is tough. It's not tender. I'm trying to be tender, but there's just a tough line of truth in this sermon. And I feel like we need to address it and we need to hit it hard so that we can hopefully, by God's grace, uh, accept what God has called us to steward and begin to represent God well in the boundaries that he's given us in our life. The second thing that I want to make sure I remind you of in the forefront of this message is the gospel. Uh, This is not a message of try harder. Okay, so a lot of preaching, you'll hear a preacher preach, and it's like, you're doing it wrong, try harder. And that's anti-gospel. And so what you end up with when you leave church is a burden, not a blessing of knowing that the power of God is with you, that the grace of God is covering, that the mercy of Christ is sufficient for you, so that you can go out and live by the Spirit of God the life that you've not yet to live before. And so let me remind you that the grace of God is covering you, The power of God compels you, that the mercy of God is enough for you, and where you have fallen short, you're not to feel guilty and hanging your head in shame. That's the enemy's plan. God's plan is to correct you as his child so that he can build you up to become what you've not yet become. So God is not tearing you down, he's building you up, and and sometimes that comes through challenging uh, battles with what I call a reckoning with realization, or reckoning with reality. And for some of us, we've got to have a reckoning with reality about the lack of boundaries that we have in our life before we can be healthy and move forward as a son or daughter of God. Are you tracking with me? So with all that said, all the warnings, Genesis chapter 2, uh, before we get to any of the other dysfunctional families, we should probably start with the first dysfunctional family. We are introduced to a guy named Adam and Eve. We get an incredible book in Genesis. Uh, we're told that in the beginning, God, that's the very first line of the very first book of the Bible that tells you what the entire thing is about. There was a beginning, before the beginning there was a God, and this book is all about a God who in the beginning did a good work and has continued to work in it and will continue to work in it until the second coming of Christ when we get a new heaven and a new earth and we enjoy him forever. So this entire book is about God and his glory, and every book that comes after is about God and his glory. Genesis chapter 3, we're going to look at briefly, is the midpoint of the Bible. You're three chapters in and you're already to the midpoint. The reason it's called the midpoint of the Bible is that's when you get into how we got here. Every bit of brokenness, every bit of why is this not working, every moment in the holiday season or in other seasons of life, when you look up and you recognize that though you're putting in good seed into good ground, you're not seeing a good harvest or a good result, when you go through life and it just doesn't seem to work right, and you wonder, why is it this way? Genesis 3 tells you. 
it's this way because there was sin that came into a garden. So you need to understand that the reason we are here is because of a decision that was made back there. And the Bible would in the New Testament go so far to say that this first man, Adam, is the image in which we are born in. We are all image bearers of God, but we all walk in the actions of Adam. We all act as our first father, Adam, acted. We are uh, tough where we need to be tender. We're tender where we need to be tough. We forsake God-given responsibilities for created things that we cherish above the creator of creation. And as a result of it, like our first father and mother, Adam and Eve, we forsake relationship with God for momentary pleasure. And we need to be delivered from that. And the Bible in the New Testament tells us there's a greater Adam. His name is Jesus. And he came to live the life we couldn't live and die the death that we should have died so that you and I can have a hope that we don't deserve to have. And he's come. And in Jesus, you are given a new identity. You are no longer sinners, but you're saints in Christ Jesus. So what you do doesn't define you. It can describe you, but it doesn't define your value because what defines the value of someone in Christ is the blood that was shed for them to redeem them, to receive them, to pick them up, and to deliver them from the person that they've been into a new creation, a new work. Okay, I'm babbling and preaching before I even get to the point where I'm supposed to be preaching. So Genesis chapter 2, we get into the story of creation. We're coming down to the end of it, and in verse 7, it says this, Then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground, and he breathed the breath of life into the man's nostril. Uh, nostrils. That word is pneuma. He gave him his spirit. And the man became a living person. Then the Lord God planted a garden in Eden. That's interesting. God's created land. He's created water. He's created stars. He's created the moon. He's created the sun. And he plants a garden. In where? In Eden. So we have a garden in a place called Eden. In the east, that's its location, and there he placed the man he made. The Lord God made all sorts of trees to grow up from the ground, trees that were beautiful and that produced delicious fruit. In the middle of the garden, he placed the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So we have a garden. It's in the east. There's rivers around it. There's a man that's been placed in it. Are you tracking with me? In the middle of that garden, there is are two trees, the, the tree of eternal life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There's going to be some further instruction that's going to come about those two trees. Look at what it goes on to say. Verse 10, a river flowed from the land of Eden. So now we know that there's a garden on the east of Eden, and there's a river that flows out of the land of Eden, and it goes to other lands, watering the garden and dividing into four branches. The first branch, called the Pishon, flowed around the entire land of Havilah, where gold is found. The gold of that land is exceptionally pure, aromatic resin, and onyx stones are also found there. The second branch, called Gihon, flowed from around the entire land of Cush. The third branch, called the Tigris, flowed east of the land of Ashur. The fourth branch is called the Euphrates. The Lord God, all right, listen, so there's lots of land, there's lots of waters, there's lots of spaces in this creation, but the Lord God placed the man where? In the Garden of Eden to tend and watch over it. But the Lord God warned him, you may, eat freely, free, uh, you may freely eat of the fruit of every tree in the garden except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat its fruit, you are sure to die. So we have a garden, it's in the east, in a land called Eden, and God puts Adam within it. He gives him a boundary. 
He calls him to steward that garden, to work that garden, so that that garden will flourish. I want to be very clear. All of us, in various ways, have specific boundaries that God has given us, limitations. Some of you, all of us have this one. Some of you have said, if I just had more time, I could get more done. Well, time is a boundary that God gave. And the lie that you believe is more time is what you need. God gave you what you need with time. What you need is boundaries within that time to get done what God has called you to get done. Those of us that run out of time often do so because we don't have clear boundaries. We're out somewhere else, some other, some other person's garden, some other person's land, down river where we're not supposed to be, using time that's meant to be spent in that garden somewhere else. So when we come back to the garden, it's overgrown, and it's overrun, and it's not being cared for, and it's all because we weren't stewarding the boundary God called us to steward. We were stewarding somewhere else where God didn't give us time or a calling to go and steward. Does this make sense? So Adam is put in the garden to steward that garden. He's told that there's a tree that's in that garden that should he ever choose that he doesn't want to live within that boundary or under the glory of God or in fellowship with God that he can eat from. If he eats from it, he will surely die. Then, verse 18, God said, it's not good for man to be alone. Notice what happens before there's a, it's not good for man to be alone. There's a boundary that's clear. There's a priority and a mission that's given. There's a work that the hands are being put to. There's a fellowship with God that's experienced. All within the garden before the woman is brought into the story that the man is now called to take stewardship of. Essentially, if you can't steward a garden, how are you going to steward a marriage? If everything in the garden's dying, you probably don't want to bring another human life to die in the garden you're not stewarding with you. So I I want to be very clear, a lot of you as single men or young women in this room, for some of you, it is good that you are alone. You do not have boundaries, and as a result of not having boundaries, you have a broken identity, misprioritized priorities, broken values or misplaced values, and as a result of it, in your folly, while you figure it out, you should figure that out by yourself. Don't bring somebody else up in it with you. We have a culture that advocates for dating young and practices divorcing early. So we date a lot early and break up when hardship comes instead of learning values, priorities, and boundaries early so that when God brings someone into our life who has boundaries themselves and values themselves in their life, we can have a healthy, non-baggage-needed relationship that can honor and glorify God and endure through hard times. But instead, by the time we get to healthy relationships later in life, we've already broken up 37 times. So we get married, but then it's just a little bit of paperwork and a little bit of money, and we can break up again. So what you get is a hot mess of people who have no boundaries. And as a result of it, make a great mess out of everybody that comes into contact with them. This is my concern. My concern in this church is that a lot of the hot messes that are going on in our families are actually nothing to do with everybody else in the family, but they're doing with the fact that you and I do not have clear boundaries in our own life. Do you know your boundaries? The garden in which God has called you to steward. Now, I lay this out, and I understand that for some of you, you're looking at me like, what does that even mean? Well, let me be clear. Boundaries are property lines. So you have a property line of responsibility that's on you to steward. It's your responsibility. And it doesn't matter what your starting point was. 
your economic upbringing and what that was like, at the end of the day, it's on you. In just a few minutes, Adam's going to leave his father and mother, right? That's the, what the text says. He'll leave, for this reason, man shall leave his father and mother and they shall become what? So yeah, you got a family that affected you, that set up a value system that they had over you, but ultimately, the day you say, I do, you step out and you take priority over a new family that you steward. And what that family does, that's on you. That's not on the family you came from. That's on you. And my, my concern in this house is that for many of us, we've not yet to accept the boundaries that God has given us, the responsibilities that God has called us to. And as a result of it, we potentially are taking account for things that aren't in our garden while we neglect the garden God's actually called us to keep. You see, Adam was not responsible for all of Eden, but he was to take an account for what was happening within the garden of Eden. So again, the question I ask is this, do you know what God has called you to take responsibility for? And if you don't, there's a high likelihood that you are being guilted by the enemy into taking responsibility for things that aren't actually yours to be responsible for. So are you taking responsibility for the things that are outside of your garden? Now, a boundaries of property line, let me kind of lay out what I mean by this. What is your responsibility? I am a Christian man. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have been filled with the Holy Spirit. He has empowered me to walk by the Spirit and not by the flesh and to become more and more like Jesus day over day, week over week, year over year in my life. As a Christian follower, I am responsible for my witness. You can't witness for me. I'm responsible for witnessing to the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's my story to tell. It's my ministry to steward. And it has nothing to do with me being a preacher on a stage. It has to do with being a follower of Jesus. If you are a follower of Jesus, you are a witness. And you have a witness to give to the resurrection power of Jesus Christ and how it has intersected your life. And no one can do it for you. It's not the pastor's job. It's not other Christians' jobs that are more mature than you. It's your story and it's your witness to give. And you're responsible for how you steward it. It has nothing to do with the church you're in. The preacher that preaches over you has to do with what you do with the witness God gave you. That's yours as a Christian person. On top of that, you have a property uh, line to steward, which is your words. You are responsible for what you say. Your kids didn't make you say it. Your spouse didn't make you say it. Your job didn't make you say it. You're responsible for what you say. You're also responsible, you ready for this, for your reactions. You're not responsible for everything that happens to you. There are going to be times in your life where bad things are going to be done by people to you. Some with evil intent and some because of their own sinful behavior or whatever are going to impact you by their sinful decisions even if it wasn't meant for evil by them. It's nonetheless going to impact you. Those things you can't control. But you can control how you react to them. You can't control what you say when they happen to you. See, this is the point. Some of you are taking responsibility for what's happened to you. When in actuality, what you're responsible for is how you react to what's been done to you. It's a big difference. So as a Christian, I'm responsible for my witness. I'm responsible for the things that I say. I'm responsible for my reactions. I'm responsible for my decisions. Uh, one of the scariest things for some of you is to realize is I've been tasked with a small group of elders in our church to make some pretty big decisions for the direction we move in. With guidance and support from the congregation, we decide are we going to leverage finance to feed 750,000 people? That would be awesome. <laughs> 750,000 people. Apparently, that's where we're going. No, we're going to feed, feed a country. Uh, 
a small town in Utah. I mean, like, like you know. <clears throat> no, we have to make decisions. We have to say no to certain things and yes to certain things. And ultimately, if those decisions are wrong, who's responsible? I'm responsible for those decisions because it's a boundary God has called me to steward. College football coaches are dealing with a bad day tomorrow. It's, it's fire and Monday. That's what happens in college football season after the last game. Is a lot of coaches lose their job because they're responsible for what happens within that team. On the field, in practice, in travel, they're ultimately responsible for it. So I'm responsible for my decisions, my reactions, my words, my witness. I'm responsible to, for my own submission to the Holy Spirit. You can't submit to the Holy Spirit for me, and I can't submit to the Holy Spirit for you. At the end of the day, it's your job to decide, today, am I going to take up my cross, Luke 9, 23, deny myself and follow him, or am I going to live in my flesh? No one made you be carnal. Don't, don't go Bobby Boucher's mom and say, the devil made you do it. You decided to live in the flesh. You could live by the Spirit, but instead of picking up your cross, you decided you were going to pick up your flesh and act wild. Well, they had it coming. Well, they brought it out of me. No, they didn't. The, the Spirit of God lives within you. Greater is He that is in you than that that's in the world. So don't tell me that the enemy made you do it. You're giving him way too much credit for a garden you're supposed to be stewarding. Let me be very clear. Are you taking responsibility for your pursuit of Christ daily? For submitting to the Holy Spirit? Are you taking responsibility for your pursuit of Jesus? Well, I just haven't found a church that has a preacher that preaches the way that we really like. Let me be very clear. I take a high honor in the responsibility of teaching and breaking down the word of God for you. But if the precipice, the pinnacle of your study of the word of God is a weekly 40-minute sermon from your pastor, and you think that that is going to be sufficient nourishment to get you through the entire week, you have gravely overestimated the power of a preacher to supply a meal that will last for seven days. Most of you are eating more than three a day. Physically. If you're eating three meals a day physically and you ain't skipping one, what, how wise would it be to eat one and then take a week off and expect yourself to be flourishing? See, many, many of us, we don't apply the same principle. We don't open the Word of God. We don't study the Word of God. We don't pursue Jesus through the Word of God. We don't apply the Word of God. And as a result of it, we're spiritually malnourished people. It's not another pastor's job to make me pursue Jesus. It's my job to pursue Christ. And, and the reason I bring all that up is to say to you, are you taking responsibility for your own garden? Or are you blaming others for the problems that are going on with what God has called you to steward? Are you taking responsibility? Let me take it a step further. Uh, as a husband... I am responsible for fulfilling my vows to God that I, gave to, that I made to him on my wedding day. It starts there. Before I made a vow horizontally to Morgan, I made a vow vertically to God. And I'm responsible, not her, on my end, I'm responsible for fulfilling my vow that I made to God that day. I'm responsible for the vow that I made to her on that day. To love and to cherish her, to be loyal, to forsaken all others until death do us part. Like, like I'm responsible for keeping that vow. That's on me, on my side. Now, some of you immediately are already interjecting, but they haven't kept up there. They haven't, they haven't, they haven't. They haven't. This isn't about them. This is about the commitment you made that was meant to be covenantal, not transactional. Meaning it's not based on what they do. 
It's based on the commitment you made to a God that promised to supply you with his spirit in your marriage in the area of need that you would have in the future when you lacked what you needed to give in that relationship. Have you read Malachi? Have I not given them a portion of my spirit? Was I not a witness to their union when they exchanged their vows and gave them a portion of my spirit on that day to tie them together? You see, what you have in your marriage is a cord of what? Three strands. And when it goes wrong and it's difficult and you're like, I'm counting and I don't want to count because I've served three times and they've only served 1.75. I'm counting and I don't want to count, but I feel like I'm, I'm like at a 10, but they're at like a four and a half when it comes to effort. And, and when you get there and you begin to do that, and you're, here's what happens. You then go over and you try and steward their commitment that's on them to keep, not on you to keep, instead of taking care of your commitment that you've made supplied by God and energized by God to give so that you can be faithful to the vow until the very end, which was the promise that you made. Oh, it's going to get quiet, ain't it? Oh, this is what we're going to do? Y'all going to be in turkey slumber? You don't want to talk to me about this? You see, it's my job to serve my wife as Christ loved and served the church, Ephesians chapter 5. It's my job to build her up with the washing of the water with the word. That's Ephesians chapter 5 as well. So it's my job to speak life to her. Well, she doesn't speak life to me. She just tears me down. This isn't about what they do. You can't control them. See, the problem most of you are having in your marriage is you don't have a boundary. You try to control what you can't control, them. Instead of controlling what you're supposed to be controlling, yourself. And when you get distracted thinking you've got to control them, guess what you stop doing? You stop serving because you're too busy trying to control. You stop loving because you're too busy counting. You stop building up because you're too busy criticizing you ain't got it this this is why boundaries are so important you are not the lord almighty you're not to bear the entire world's weight on your shoulders there's a big difference between you helping someone and you bearing someone's foolishness And some of you are like, well, what, is, what about this stuff in the Bible about like bearing one another's burdens and am I not supposed to be my brother's keeper and, and, and that kind of stuff. Let me tell you the difference. There's a difference between me having a boundary and me holding you accountable. My boundary is what I'm responsible for. Me holding you accountable is me as a neighbor going, hey, neighbor, right now that doesn't look like it's God honoring. Let me help you with that. Let me come over into your property and help you with that. But I can't bear it because ultimately the end game is not that I expand into your property and take on what is yours, but that you would actually take ownership of it and I give you a help up in a moment where you need a helping hand as you're working through a difficult time. But it's not my responsibility to ultimately bear. I'll carry the load with you for a minute, but then it's ultimately something you're going to carry as you move forward. So as a husband, it's my job to serve her, to build her up, to love her as Christ loves her, as Christ loved the church, to be faithful in my love, devotion, and fidelity to her. But it's not uh, to her. But it's not my job. It's not my job to control her, or fix her, or change her. It's not my job to keep up her side of the very same commitment that she made. I'm not responsible for the decisions she chooses to make. I'm not responsible for for whether or not the love I give is reciprocated, whether or not the service I give is reciprocated, whether or not the loyalty I give is reciprocated, whether or not the fidelity I give or not is reciprocated. I can't control that. But I can make sure on my end that it's God-honoring, spirit-filled, and supplied by God whenever I give it to them. You see, I, I, 
I want all of those things to happen. I want her to be loyal. I want her to keep her vow. I, I want her to uh, be committed as I'm committed. I want, I, I, I want that to happen, but I can only bear the responsibility for my vows, my service, my words, my loyalty, and my fidelity to her. Let me take it a step further, because this is where we have really big problems with boundaries. Let's talk about being a parent for a minute. How many of y'all got a little one? Okay. They're a blessing from the Lord. That's what the Bible says, not what Russ says. And I have to tell myself that the Bible says they're a blessing from the Lord, because what Russ says sometimes... Oh. <laughs> go get a switch. That, I mean, that's what, that's what Russ thinks sometimes. As a parent, I am responsible for training up my kids to understand and walk in the faith. But I am not responsible for making sure that they walk in that faith. So they're going to grow up in a godly house. They don't have a choice. Some of you are like, well, I just want my kid to choose. Well, you've already chosen to train them in nothing. Mom and dad have convictions, and you may choose to live separate to those convictions, but you will know mom and dad's convictions and why we believe them when you leave this house. And then whenever you leave and you run away and you put your fingers in your ear and you try to get do everything you can to like go room spring and go crazy, I did it. It was crazy. I had a praying mother. I did not have a chance. Because here's what my mom began to pray whenever I was in college before I met Jesus and I was going nuts. God, you said in your word that you should train up a child in the way they should go. And when they are old, even though they may try, Lord, they will not depart from it. So, Lord, I'm just bringing my son to you again because he's trying to run away from his training. And multiple times, my praying mother, godly woman, looked at me and she said, Well, I want you to know, I trained you, I prayed for you, and I'm not letting you go. And you gotta, you got to know. This is a beautiful gift. So as a, as a parent, I'm not responsible for whether or not my kids walk in the faith, but I am responsible for training them up to know and understand why we have a faith that we believe in. I'm responsible as a parent. It's my garden to, to steward. To, it's my, I'm responsible to set the spiritual pace and example for my family. It's my job to disciple them. It's my job to love their mom. And should, for whatever reason, someday come where their mom and I were separated, it's my job to still honor her even if we're separated. Well, she's not doing that. She's slandering my name. She makes the kids my... It's not about her. That's her boundary. It's about your boundary. It's about what you're doing that points to a God that's at work in it or dishonors the God who's standing beside ready to work through it. Are we uncomfortable yet? See, at the end of the day, as a pastor, I'm not responsible for everything you do, thank God. Everything you post on social media. I'm responsible for teaching good, clear doctrine, for giving you application and calls to apply it to your life. I'm responsible to work alongside a group of wise counsel and in obedience to the Holy Spirit and leading this church to be spirit-filled and spirit-led. But I'm not responsible for your application of the word. I can help you, but you've got to apply it. No pastor in the way they preach it is going to change your life. You taking the word of God, which is life, and allowing the Holy Spirit, who's at work in you, to apply it to your life, that will change your life. Yes, we want the word to be clear. Yes, we want it to be preached in an applicable way. But at the end of the day, your lack of growth has little to do with your pastor. It has more to do with a lack of boundary and habits in your own life. Do you know your boundaries? 
Number two, are you taking responsibility for somebody else's boundary? If you have a kid that's grown, that's in addiction, man, I am heartbroken for you. But let me be very clear. You did not fail them as a parent. The reason they're an addict does not have anything to do with anything you've done. They're making their own choices. Now, what we get in a lot of, especially grown kid situations, this happens in a lot of codependent relationships. I get it's it's super silent because everyone's either pissed off, disinterested, or something in between. But but let's dig in a little bit more. Uh, Let let me be clear. In, In most codependent relationships, what you end up getting are people that guilt you into thinking that you're not Christ-like if you have a boundary. I can't believe you even claim to know Jesus. You're not going to let me come back in and stay in this house. You're going to put your grandchildren on the street? Those grandkids were not my kids. I love my grandkids, but I already raised my kids. That's your job. Not mine. That's on your property. Not mine. And I get that sometimes we step in and we have to do things that we don't think. But at the end of the day, don't you let people who have no boundaries guilt you in to taking responsibility for their delinquency. Know what you're responsible for. No one's been the perfect father. No one's been the perfect mother. There's stories that all of our kids will tell of us if they wanted to. They were like, yeah, that wasn't the best moment. <laughs> that one right there, that was, not, that was not the mark. Like that, That's the example of what not to do. Like, you know, like we're, you're, you're going to have that. But at the end of the day, they're going to grow up and they're going to be an adult and they've got to make their own decisions and they've got to bear the consequences of it. And we have a culture that likes to remove all consequence from every decision we make so that you never learn. And you in a codependent relationship, whether it's with a grown kid who likes to blame you for their addiction and their delinquency, what you'll end up with is they'll say, well, I just need you to hold me accountable. I just need you to help me one more time. And what they really want you to do is to continue with your responsibility for your area to keep coming up to their life and come alongside them while they're delinquent. They want to watch you be obedient to the faith while they stay delinquent in the faith. They want to watch you so they can eat off the fruit of your faith while they continue to have no fruit in their own faith, in their own journey. And at the end of the day, there comes a point time where you in love set a boundary and you're like look that's outside my garden and I love you and I can come help you clean your garden up but it's your garden the church is not here to fix everybody's problem when it comes to the financial mishaps or anything else that happens with them sometimes look the best thing the church can do is let you deal with it because you got to get control over your garden you've got to get control over your life in the way that it honors or dishonors God. This is a tough teaching. What happens in the story? Well, Adam's given this boundary in this line, and then there's a woe man that's created. They're naked, it's good. Rest of chapter chapter 2 in summation. Then in chapter 3, it says, The serpent was the shrewdest of all wild animals. The Lord God had made. One day, he asked the woman, Did God really say you must not eat of any of the trees in the garden? Verse 2, the woman says, Of course, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. The woman replied, it's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we are not allowed to eat. God said, you must not eat it or touch it. If you do, you will die. Verse 4, you won't die, the serpent replied. By the way, 
they obviously had a conversation. There's no conversation recorded between God and Eve in Genesis 1 and 2. There is one recorded between God and Adam in Genesis 2. And that carries over to Eve knowing about that conversation in Genesis 3, likely from the conversation she had with Adam somewhere prior. So the, the standard's been spoken. She just threw it back at the serpent. The serpent says, you won't die. The serpent replied to the woman, God knows that your eyes will be open as soon as you eat it, and you'll be like God, knowing both good and evil. The woman was convinced. Okay, that's the red flag. Now, many of us would read that, and we're like, okay, she's in trouble, but she's probably somewhere in the garden that Adam's not. He's the steward of the garden. It's his job to know, like in a, in a moment like where something's bad, that this is his to, to plead. And Eve's her own woman. She may still have chosen to eat of the tree or whatever, but you know, if he were there, surely he would interject. Read the story. She saw the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious and she wanted the wisdom it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and ate it and then she gave some to her husband who was... This was your garden, man. You ever heard the question, if someone jumped off the bridge, would you jump off with them? Adam's answer is, if she's naked, yes. That's a really good church joke. See, see, what Adam should have done is he should have gotten between her and the tree. And said, no, 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 we, we, we ain't going here. It should have been over his dead body that she got to the tree. Because it was his to steward. He can't control what she's ultimately going to do, but he can do everything that he can to plead with her not to do it. Instead, though, he stands behind her in silence. Forsaking the garden that God had called him to. And this is the problem in this room. Is there are a lot of you here who have forsaken the garden God has called you to? And you blame everybody else for why it's overgrown and underproducing. It's my dad's fault. No, that's your responsibility. Well, I didn't have a good example. Well, you've got a heavenly father who sent the son, who's filled you with his spirit, who can overcome any kind of shortcoming or bad start that you've had. It's not easy. Well, it's harder for me than it is for you. Maybe. Maybe. But nonetheless, God picked you and called you and filled you with the Holy Spirit. So do you want to make excuses or do you, in the grace of God, want to take responsibility for the garden that God has called you to? This isn't going to fix them, but it will definitely change you. Because it will give you peace to know by the grace of God, hey, I, I can't fix you, but hey, hey, I am living to the best of my ability, submitted to God. I'm imperfect, I can repent, but His grace is sufficient, His mercy is enough, and I'm going to walk in His power to pick up the responsibility God has given me, and to the best of His God-given ability in me, I'm going to live a life that pursues and seeks Him. Now here's what happens. Adam and Eve eat of the tree. They know that they're naked. They get so fig leaves together. They cover themselves. And then it says this. When the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord walking in the Garden of Eden. So they hid from the Lord God among the trees. Okay. David, man after God's own heart, sins, Bathsheba, murder, with, murders Uriah, big mess, okay? Gets confronted, and what does he do? He, in repentance, falls to the ground running towards God. Adam, in com being confronted, hey, the garden's, garden's a mess, man. You've let the enemy in. You've let him have a seat at your table. 
and he's ravaging the family, man. I mean, we're, we're a chapter or two away from Cain murdering Abel. Since crouching at the door. Okay? You got you to understand, this is your garden. You, you've not been caught. It doesn't matter what's happening down river. It, it matters what's happening right here. It's not about what that marriage was like. It's not about what they did. It, it, it's about what's here. But instead, what does Adam do? He takes the woman who he's chosen over God, which is the first act of idolatry that happens in the Bible. And as a result, they hide together and they continue the rebellion running from God. You see, when you're confronted with hard truth, you either repent or you run. Some of you young men, we're confronting you with the fact that, you're, you're look, the boundaries aren't set. You don't know who your God is. You don't have values in place. You don't have priority. Like, you, we need to fix this before we bring them into it. Now, what happens with a lot of us? We run like Adam and hide. Instead of dealing with the problem and running to God with our knee. They hide from God. The Lord comes, and look at what he says. When the cool evening breeze were blowing, the man and his wife, they heard the Lord walking in the garden, so they hid from the Lord God among the trees. When the Lord God called to the man, where are you? Who did God call for? Whose garden was it? It was Adam's to steward by the power of God for the glory of God. So God comes whenever the garden's not right, and he looks for Adam replied, I heard you walking in the garden, so I hid. I was afraid because I was naked. Who told you you were naked? The Lord God asked. Have you eaten from the tree whose fruit I command you not to eat? The man replied, it was the woman. And we laugh at it because it's the delinquency we see in families today. You shave, but you're a child. Pay taxes, you're still immature because you never set a boundary you never began to bend a knee and worship God and as a result of it you never grew up and trust me Neverland is fun until you have a family but it's pathetic whenever you begin to raise up generation after generation of people who shirk responsibility and run away from it do you know your garden if you're single let me just close with an encouragement to you here. Some would say this is a challenge, but let me just be clear. If you're single before you date, you should set some boundaries. What do I mean? Well, if you're going to date, one of the first conversations should be, let's talk boundaries. Let's talk about what we do and what we do not do. Let's talk about where we go and where we do not go. Let's talk about what's appropriate and what's inappropriate. From the gate you're in high school and in college, I think that's really important. We're not going to have sleepovers. We're not going to hang out past X amount of time because nothing good can happen. We are, when we sit down, not going to lay down or put ourselves in comfort. I'm going to get real uncomfortable with you. you this is the boundary talk. We're not going to get ourselves in this position because that puts us in a compromised position to dishonor God. And should the day come where I stand before you with God at an altar to make a commitment to you, I want to know that we're coming to that altar having honored God and what we've done leading up to it instead of dishonoring God and trying to skirt in real quick and get his blessing on something that's not honored him from the day that it began. That's not normal. You're not meant to be normal. If you're Christian, you're weird. Embrace it or stop using the moniker. 
I was a virgin on my wedding night. Yeah, we had boundaries. Did those boundaries ever get like pushed and like, like was there ever like a, yeah, yes. Her dad was a former Hell's Angel. That helped. <laughs> he did seven and a half on a 15 at Perry Correctional Institute. She's named after the police officer that led her to Christ. It was a constant reminder that he had been there and he's not afraid to go back. So every time you say her name, Morgan, it was a reminder, he'll go back. What are your boundaries? Look, if you don't know who your God is, don't date. If you don't know what your values are, don't date. If you don't have priorities, don't date. And every, all the married people are like, yes, yes. All the single people are like, take it into consideration. You got to have boundaries. Parents, if you have kids, look, it's your job. It's your job to determine the God you will worship and the values and priorities you will live by. That's on you. It's on you to call them out. It's on you to live by them. When you violate them yourself, it's your job to repent of them. We talked about that recently. If you have kids that are over 18, let me remind you, you're advisors and investors, not financiers and insurance agents. Oh, good stuff's on the end, huh? Your advisors, hey, let me help you with that. You want to bounce off whether or not it's smart to buy a new car? You want to bounce off whether that financial decision is good or not? You want to bounce off that parenting tax? Like, yeah, I can help you with that, but I'm not going to parent for you. And I'm not going to fund it for you. I'm an advisor. I can invest. Hey, we've got some extra. Let me invest in you. Let me help you out. Let me lighten your load. But I'm, I'm not going to be the financer of everything. I'm not your bail bondsman. I'm not going to bail you out. I'm not going to deal with your delinquency on my watch, on my clock, if you're not pursuing taking responsibility of your own boundary. What do you do with the frequent trespassers that are in your life? Well, let's talk about that as we for real land the plane. What, what do you do? What do you do whenever you've got people that just will not <laughs> keep crossing your boundaries? Well, if you're dating them, you ditch them. It's really simple, right? If you're married to them, you sometimes have to put hard space between it. If it's physical, if it's verbal, Sometimes you've got to get people between you and them for a while so that they can go to their own property and work on them until they come back as a transformed and changed person. But for some of you, let me be very clear, no matter what boundaries you set, they are going to be demonized by some that are in your life. They're not going to be honored by them. And you're going to have to constantly, if there's any interaction with them, remind them of that boundary as long as they're around. It's just not going to go away. They're not going to change, and it's not your job to change them. Not your property line, right? So what do you do? Well, the Bible speaks about trespasses. Jesus prayed about it. Whenever they trespass against you, what do we do? Forgive those who? So we're going to forgive them so that bitterness doesn't fester. There's no law on love, so I'm going to love them. Does that mean I have to love them up close? Sometimes, but not all the time. Sometimes because they violate a boundary so frequently, you love them at a distance. I love you. I want what's best for you. I have forgiven you. But no, I'm not going to come as you return back to your vomit. Proverbs says, as a fool returns to, as a, as a, uh, as a fool returns to his vomit, so, or as a dog returns to his vomit, so a fool to his folly. And some people are in a cycle where they're constantly going back to their folly over and over again. And it is not your job to constantly be their DD. It's not your job to constantly go back with them on that cycle over and over again as they are not changing and choosing to stay in the behavior of delinquency that you're enabling them to stay in by your presence supplying, supporting, and funding it. 
So I'm going to love you, but I'm not going to support you in that. I can't support that because I know it's not God's best, and it will not bring God's fruit in your life. And because I want God's best and God's fruit, I forgive you, I love you, but there's a boundary, and you stay over there while you're in that foolishness. If they're a parent, you can honor them. It's not up to them. It's not whether or not they were an honorable parent. You honor them. I honor you for giving me life. I'm grateful for you, and I'm praying God's best for you, even though that we have a strained relationship. I can still honor you. It's not up, it's not up to them receiving it well or them, well, that, you know, that's not honor. If you honored me, you would give me, you would let me. No, 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 no. Stay on your property. That's why we have a boundary. Does this make sense? This is tough. We're coming up to a holiday season where you've got to deal with a lot of people that you may not have set a boundary for. You set a boundary for, and they immediately said, <laughs> let's see. And so we want to have a prayer team that's going to pray for you down front. If you need prayer in this holiday season for the boundaries you've not set or for the boundaries you need to set, we'd love to pray with you for that. If you've got a hot mess family, good news. There's a lot of us in this room that got a hot mess family, and we need a lot of prayer. And so if you need that, we'd love to pray with you in the coming moments. And then we're going to come right back and take communion. Let's respond as the Lord leads in Jesus' name. Amen.